So Pastor Terry kicked off last week with a focus on hope. Uh, and this week he's, he has the pleasure of, of uh, sharing with uh, a congregation at Asbury Park that we've developed a relationship with, with, with as a church and have been uh, kind of forming a partnership with them. So we're happy to be able to have Pastor Terry down there today, our lead pastor. And it affords me the opportunity to spend time uh, with you. Uh, so in Advent, we look at the themes of hope, peace, joy, and love, and we, we, we won, we remember Jesus' coming and his birth, the incarnation, what a huge event in, in history, and the hope, peace, joy, and love that, that Jesus' coming brought to the world. But it's not just nostalgic looking back. In Advent, we also look towards the future of the second coming of Christ, where Christ will come again and bring the fullness of his hope, peace, joy, and love. Uh, which it's, a, it's an exciting practice to kind of orient our minds and our calendar and uh, uh, our, 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 our kind of routines of Christmas that can sometimes be disoriented from the original purpose and to put the focus back on the reason of celebrating the Christmas season and the depth that the Christmas season has to offer us in our lives and the hope, peace, joy, and love that Christ brought. So again, Pastor Terry kicked us off last week with hope, and today I'm going to focus on how Christ came to bring peace so we could be at peace with him, with the world, and with ourselves. We all know peace is a very uh, important topic, something that we think a lot about. If you've ever watched a Miss Universe competition, you know this is very true by the canned world peace answer to what your greatest wish would be. This message is my audition for Miss Universe, so I'm going to try and get in uh, with this. World peace. Um, but peace matters. But the reality is, though it's something that we aspire for, we dream of, uh, we see a lot of despair, we see a lot of discord, brokenness, lack of peace around us. You know, God forbid you watch the news or read the news with some frequency and you're doused with the, the, the terrible stories that happen all around the world, internationally, nationally, communally, within households, within relationships, marriages, friendships. There's uh, so much conflict that we experience in the world. And I want to share uh, kind of the, the two halves of two different stories um, that we're familiar with these kinds of stories that, but that reflect some of the lack of peace that we read about in the world. There's a story of a guy named Billy Neil Moore. He was an army soldier at home on leave in Georgia who tried to rob 77-year-old Fred Stapton in his home. When Stapton heard an intruder, he shot into the darkness. Moore shot back and killed him. When I found out that I had actually killed somebody, I couldn't believe it, Moore said. He pled guilty to murder and was sentenced to death. Stapton's family had lost their father and grandfather. Moore had lost any hope of a future. Literal walls stood around Moore to ensure that he would never meet the people his actions had hurt. United by violence, Moore and his victim's family were divided by a society that could not imagine redemption. Isn't that so true? So often we're more united by violence and divided by our inability to have redemption in this world. Or there's a story of Angelina Atiyam who lived in northern Uganda where families live in fear inside one of the world's most pressing situations of violence. In 1996, 139 children were abducted from their school by the Lord's Resistance Army. The children included the 14-year-old daughter of Angelina Atium, a midwife and nurse. Atium knew she would never see her daughter again. 
thousands of parents before her had bitterly resigned themselves to a brutal reality that could not be changed. She had every reason to be angry, but little room to hope that anything could change. I promise we'll peek at a point of hope at some point in this message, but this lays the reality of the world around us and what we know to be true whenever we look around. And I think that a lot of times we think that our society, our world, our lives are are relegated to despair and lack of peace. We don't think that peace can be because we've never seen it occur in our lives, because we've never seen it be in the world. But we have to remember that part of God's original design and hope for his creation was that it would be full of peace. When God created the world, and when you look at Genesis, he created the garden, and what you see in, in, the, in the original Hebrew is that there was chaos, there was, there was turmoil, and what God is, is he came in as the orderer, as the one who created peace and harmony in the world. God took what was disordered, and he made order out of it that, that resulted in a peacefulness, and he put humans in the earth to create order, peacefulness, harmony out of the discord, out of the brokenness. Now, I think that when we think about creating peacefulness, uh, we think of something specific. We think of an absence of conflict, right? That's so often how we think about it. We think about, you know, uh, well, you know, we can be happy if if we go out and we just aren't in conflict with someone else, then we have peace. Well, the biblical conception of peace is much fuller than that and is much uh, uh, more inspiring and meaningful and important than just having an absence of conflict. Think about, like, sometimes we hear about, like, peace treaties that will be signed between countries, uh, right? And I'm always wondering, like, why do they call them peace treaties? It's more of, like, a temporary stop at bombing each other until something else happens, and then we're going to start bombing you again, right? That's not peace to me. What we see scripturally is that Peace, uh, which is, which is uh, uh, in the Old Testament, rooted in the word shalom, which many of us have, have, uh, are aware of, means a completeness, soundness, well-being, and prosperity. That includes every aspect of life, personal, relational, spiritual, and so on. That is the peace that we are seeking after. Absence of conflict, who cares about that? I know, to be honest, conflict is normally a productive activity, if done in the right way, right? Where there are natural disagreements on things and you engage in inappropriate conflict in order to, to get a wanted or uh, in between two parties if they go about it in the right way. But so often I believe in our society when we, when we talk about an ethic of peacefulness, we really mean that we live and abide by uh, an ethic of live and let live. Hey, if you don't infringe upon me, then I won't infringe upon you and therefore we can sit next to each other on the train But in terms of completeness and soundness and unity and harmony between peoples, that is not what we typically mean when we're seeking after peace. But God has this idea, this dream, this want, not just to be able to have two people talk to each other without fighting. God doesn't just want there to be an absence of war. He wants enemies to love each other. That's a difficult turn. That's where we go from, okay, can I just remove myself from fighting with you to actually loving you and entering into something meaningful with you, something purposeful with you. This is the kind of peace that God 
intends for us and is working out in us and in his world and what we will have when Jesus comes again. However, obviously, though God intended this uh, and he created the world to, to, to reflect this kind of peacefulness and harmony through the fall and the existence of evil and our participation in all of that, commiserate in sins of discord and, 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 uh, and making things uh, not what they're supposed to be, we, we live in a world that is broken by the weight of chaos and disorder and sin and evil. But the story of the Bible since that fall, and I was like kind of drawing the big picture in perspective, is the plan to bring all of that together to, uh, uh, under Christ so that he can bring the shalom of God, the peace of God. And so what God did is he picked a guy out, Abraham, and he led him to be a part of the process where he would become a nation, and that nation would bless the other nations, which ended up being the people of Israel. And so then the people of of, of Israel were uh, supposed to be a part of this plan of bringing peace. And just like us, just like ourselves, uh, they failed at the task, which is why Christmas time eventually had to come. And so God himself and the person of Jesus Christ came into the world so that he could take on conflict and chaos and brokenness itself. As the great orderer, he came into the brokenness so that he could begin a process of setting things right. And the Jewish people knew and prophesied the coming of this Messiah. They knew that they needed someone to come into the brokenness of our situations because we could not fix the brokenness because we were the brokenness. And so God came down himself. They prophesied this in Isaiah. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Someone had to come for the world to set things right. Someone had to come for us. And this is the task that God has been on and was on when he was uh, in the, on this world in the person of Jesus and what he's still trying to accomplish, uh, accomplish through his Holy Spirit in us today. I love this passage from 2 Corinthians where uh, the Apostle Paul is, is writing to, uh, to the church of Corinth and the church of Corinth is pretty messed up and, uh, and they have a lot of relationship issues within their church. And he talks about something called the ministry of reconciliation and the peace that we're to have with God and others. Paul writes, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So what he's saying is, when you look at people, you're looking at them not the way God looks at them. You're looking at them the way the world looks at them. What does that reflect? Things like selfishness. What can I get out of you? Right? What's your values socially? And now what does that mean for you related to other people? That's what, that's what the world did to Christ, right? They looked at him and they devalued him. He wasn't the Messiah who came with the trumpets and on the big horse and on the... He was the one who, who, he was the carpenter. He was the servant of all. He came and sacrificed himself, which was unimaginable that a king would come dying the death of a slave on a cross. And so they looked at Jesus, not in the way that they were supposed to. They looked at him in a worldly point of view. But he's saying, just as the way that you looked at, at Jesus poorly 
and now we look at him uh, in the, the esteem that he deserves, the value that he deserves. So you have to move from looking at people in a worldly way and looking at them in the way that God sees them. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. First, he reconciled us to him. We see that we're reconciled to God, and then we are given the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see that we are given the ministry of reconciliation. All, anyone who, who, who believes in Jesus and counts themselves to be a child of God is uniquely and individually an ambassador for Christ of reconciliation. It's a pretty heavy task. And I don't frequently see my role as a Christian. I don't think of the ministry of reconciliation in my mind as like a big theme frequently. But here we see it is. What God was doing when he came to the world was reconciling himself to us so that we could continue reconciliation. I was just listening to a podcast late last night from a New Testament a scholar named Scott McKnight, and he wrote a book called Pastor Paul, and he was writing about the themes uh, in Paul's pastoral letters, what pastoring meant to Paul, and so on and so forth. And he said one of the single biggest themes in all of Paul's works is that uh, Christians in the Christian community should be marked by healthy relationships. And by reconciliation. That's one of the topics that Paul writes more on than, 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 it's one of the most prominent themes in all of his writings is how people get along. And this is important for us to think about, especially in what can be an individualistic culture at times, is we don't see that as a value. But one of the most important things in scripture is us making relationships right with people around us, not just an absence of conflict, but a shalom between us. But before we can go out and be peacemakers, we have to be at peace with God. We often want to go out and create peace or absence of conflict or whatever it might be for the sake of creating peace. But if peace is this holistic uh, way of living and life and relating that's both spiritual, physical, emotional, and so on, and peace isn't just this absence of conflict in our lives, then we need God who holds every aspect of our life in his hands and owns those and rules those to be the one who is at the center of our peacemaking efforts. For me to think that I'm capable of 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 mending and creating harmony, both spiritually, physically, emotionally, all of those things by my own power, I misunderstand and overestimate my capacity as a human being. First, what we must do is to ask God to come into the picture because he reigns over, holds over, has dominion over all of the different multifaceted uh, aspects of our human anthropology and what we are made up of. And only he is the one who can truly and fully 
reconcile and make peace with all of, of, of the differences of what and who we are. I believe that we as humans in our own effort can create an absence of conflict. But only God can create holistic harmony. We can mend things superficially, but at some point we need God to come in to create a holistic reparation of the, the, of the wrongs of discord and difficulty and brokenness. See, Jesus began this process of bringing peace to the world when he went to the cross. Jesus took this evil, the creator of disorder and disharmony, and defeated it when we could not. We were entrenched in this sin of disharmony. But when he was on the cross, he took the brokenness to the grave and in his resurrection defeated it. The, the, the result of the brokenness and the discord is death. And he defeated death through his resurrection so that he could be the one to create peace. And when we join him, we receive his spirit and we have the power to create peace, true peace as well. But I think that that as we're saying, we have to start with, with being at peace with God. And for one, re- for, for one reason, it's because we need him to be the one to actually create peace. But also, it's because without God, we have no reason for peacemaking. I was just listening to, uh, there's, a, there's a very difficult problem I experienced in my life. In that the most famous and prominent Christian sociologist's name is Christian Smith. <laughs> and so... Uh, I don't know, like once a week, I get emails in my inbox from academia.edu, and it goes, your name, and my heart begins to flutter, was mentioned 139 times in papers this week, and then I realized it's the sociologist Christian Smith. So, um, see, like academia.edu, that's like the end game for me, have someone mention my name in an academic paper, and then I'm let down every time very quickly. So I'm going to have to change my name at some point. So I'm going to be taking my wife's name, Amanda. We're going to be, no, just kidding. Um, So, but this Christian Smith guy is really smart. The sociologist is also smart. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, So I was listening to a podcast. This guy just came out with a book called Atheist Overreach. And and he speaks about this this new uh, kind of like... uh, ethical system, it's not super new, but movement, let's say, in society, which is rooted in, in a principle of humanism. Um, and it's a version or a subset, we could say, or is inclusive of atheistic thought and that it believes that God doesn't exist. And it's good in the sense that it promotes uh, uh, treating people well and, and human rights and, and human valuing. But as Christian Smith writes, as he addresses the sociological and philosophical presuppositions of groups like humanists and humanistic atheists, is that they argue vehemently about social rights and justice and treating people well and taking care of the poor and the value of human persons and all these kinds of things. And as Christian Smith says, I also say it too with him, I'm in accord, is that, is that this is called the atheist overreach and that they are promoting what is a universal moralism in which everyone matters, everyone has value, everyone. But if you just stop for a second and ask why, what is the value rooted in? And people typically go, well, because we're humans. And it's like, yeah, but why? Well, because we're humans. Uh, well, that's a circular argument, right? 
And when we go, why, they don't have a reason, which then relegates them to something called modest moralism, which is, I have a reason to be nice to all of you, because guess what? You impact my life, right? I have, an, I have a reason to maybe even care for my nation, or to care for my town, or to care for my home, to care for my family, because it impacts me in some kind of way. There, there's an, an immediate value system there. But in terms of like, the 39 bucks I send through Compassion International that a bunch of you do at our church, uh, you know, to El Salvador to pay for food and schooling for some kid there that I'm probably never going to meet in my life and may never impact my life in any way. What's the reasoning for that? Right? What, what's, what's, the, what's the universal care about peacemaking that we have if we do not have a foundation of, a root, uh, of, of the root of a God who says that we're in the process together of making the world right? right? So you have one narrative, which is, well, we should just care about people because they're people. You go, no, 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 we should just care about people if there's no bigger reason because it impacts us. Because we just would be inherently selfish. Does that make sense? I have a couple yeses, so I'll talk with the rest of you after. You have one narrative, which is, why should we be good? Well, because we're, okay, well, we don't have a precise intellectual rational reasoning for that. Really, I'm not motivated by the idea. And then you have this story of what God's doing, which is that God made every human in the image of God. And we're broken, but God came to the world himself so that he could defeat the brokenness, and he's given us the power, and we're in thousands of years of journey of trying to make things right and bring the world to peace and create a whole world that's living in shalom and harmony, and not just peace treaties that are kind of false, but enemies that actually come to love each other. That's the grand narrative that we're able to live in, where we Worship and serve the universal God who rules, who rules over all, who gives value to all, which creates a universal moralism where we care about all and not just what impacts us. So we need to be at peace with God because, one, we need him to be able to create holistic true peace. Because true peace doesn't exist without a true God. Flimsy peace exists without a true God. Because peace is nothing outside of what makes me not have to experience conflict? What makes me experience more safety? What makes me, opposed to, how can I put myself at risk for God to make things right? That's a different kind of value system. And that only comes once we have peace with God. So once we're at peace with God, um, and you can check that box easy enough, um, in our process of peacemaking, Again, we see all throughout Scripture the value of, of uh, and the extents to which we should go in making peace with other people. And uh, one little scriptural example that I'm sure all of you are aware of is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's just a great quick case study for us to see uh, the sacrifice that we make uh, when we are peacemakers. So what happens is... is uh, there's someone who is kind of testing Jesus as Jesus is teaching, and he goes, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your strength, mind, heart, and he gives that whole list, etc. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the man, which it's clear, is trying to kind of like 
you know, test Jesus and catch him in something. And he goes, well, who's my neighbor? You know the person who always asks that question. Well, here's, let, let me get you. And he tries to get Jesus. And Jesus then goes into the story of the Good Samaritan. So in reply to this man's question, who's my neighbor, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away. So this is likely a Jewish man uh, based on the context. Uh, Beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Looking after him, he said, and when I look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Again, though you've heard this story many times, it's such an incredible example. So, so what, what's, what's happening, to unpack it socially a little bit, is that you have this Jewish man who's going down a road from Jerusalem, uh, and, and he's attacked by robbers. And so likely this road is known by everyone as a, as a very kind of treacherous road where this sort of thing can happen. It wasn't too infrequent back then. And so the priest... And the Levite, who's a a, a Jew, who are coming from Jerusalem, which likely means that they were worshiping or they were at temple, which just makes this all the more tragically ironic, is that the priest, as he leaves their church, then goes to the other side of the road when he sees someone in trouble. And to be honest, I could imagine myself going to the other side of the road. How many times do you walk in New York City or really anywhere and it's like there's something going on and someone might need help and I can think of a moment in my head right now. And it's like, well, I don't want to be associated with that, what's happening, or have to spend time where I'm trying, right? That's a constant battles that we can face or it's just me. I feel awkward and very vulnerable right now. Um, but, in, but so they go on the other side. They're supposed to be the people who are helping this man, right? But the good Samaritan... Now you have to understand the Samaritans. So the Jews, the Jewish people, they did not like the Samaritans. And the Samaritans did not like the Jewish people. I mean like pretty vitriolic sort of relationship between the two people groups. And if you have, like, I think there are like seven, six or seven distinct kind of social strata within, within uh, uh, the, the, the Jewish context. And, and Samaritans are like the sixth out of the seventh in terms of closeness and uh, being able to get along with that group of people. So this isn't just like a, well, I don't know this person. This is like there's underlying societal hate or anger, frustration. Like, Like there's serious stuff that have happened between these peoples. But instead of going away and instead of just doing what, again, I would probably do in many situations or what some of us would do. It was just like, let me flip my phone open. What is this, the 90s? Um... Let me slide my phone open and call 911 and then slowly back away, right? He could have done something like that, but instead he bandages him. He treats his wounds. He puts them uh, and takes them all the way to the inn. And he says, I'm going to cover the inn expenses. That's like you find someone and you help them out and then you drive them to a hospital far away and then you say you're going to cover the hospital fees. 
I don't like hospital fees. But he deals with it. He's extravagant in his hospitality, despite the fact that these two people groups are at complete odds. And so Jesus is saying, who's your neighbor? Who's the person you're supposed to love? Who's the person you're supposed to have peace with? The person who you're most at odds with. You're supposed to move, not from just, I have peace with those who agree with me, but I try and extravagantly make peace with those who I nearly hate or have extreme anger or brokenness with. The key to, 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 to this, I think, one of the keys, the underlying reason for why we don't do these kinds of things is because it's difficult, um, but we have to move from hate, or use a synonym, anger, resentfulness, but it's strong. We have to move from this sense of hate to love. Only then can we truly enter into peacemaking. Otherwise, if we come in with anger or with hate, then we can't experience true reconciliation, but only superficial reconciliation. We have to come in love. But I think there are a lot of different reasons, considering different contexts, for why it can be difficult to come into a, a, a broken situation loving the other person. But I think that one of the most difficult reasons is that we feel that we should only give love if the person will reciprocate our love. That our giving of love is only justified or deserved by the other person if they will also reciprocate in love. You get what I'm saying? That's difficult to do. For instance, uh, uh, I was reading a book uh, by uh, Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage, one of the best marriage books, I think, out there. And he talks about creating peace and healing between married couples. And uh, he, he quotes Ephesians 5, which says husbands and, husbands and wives are to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So in submitting to each other, they put, they put uh, the disharmony aside and say, I'm going to love you. I'm going to submit to you despite uh, uh, the brokenness that we're experiencing. But as Keller says, neither of you may take this course of action of submitting to each other, or both of you may do it together. But there is a third possibility. It may be that one of you decides to operate on the basis of verse 21, meaning submitting to each other, and one of you does not. In this case, I've never experienced this before. Why do you think I was reading the book? <laughs> uh, what, where was I? Um, is my wife still in the room? In this case, let's say you are the only one, uh, you, are, you are the only one who decides my selfishness is the thing I'm going to work on. You're the only one who decides to submit, the other doesn't. What will happen? Usually there is not much immediate response from the other side, but often over time, your attitude and behavior will begin to soften your partner. He or she can see the pains you are taking, and it will be easier for your spouse to admit his or her faults because you are no longer always talking about theirs. See, we are called to be peacemakers. And guess what? A lot of the time, we will enter into situations where we have to show love, not just show, but feel and experience with our wills. Love towards someone that we want to experience peace with, and they will not show us the same love back. I think of this, well, our, our, our natural inclination is kind of like, you know, you're on like a first or second date with someone, and uh, you're sitting next to them in the theater, and you're trying to figure out if you should put your arm, you know, around them. 
and you only want to do it if you think they're going to kind of reciprocally receive it, right? So you kind of like do like the testing. It's like you, 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 start, you start like this, like, and you look to see if they like inch closer to you just a little bit. Anyone get what I'm saying? No? Uh, and, uh, and then you, if, if they don't reciprocate, someone just put their arm over their spouse while sitting in their chair. I won't point you out, but that was funny. And if they don't reciprocate, then the arm slowly goes down, and then you try it two weeks later. But we want people to reciprocate with us because otherwise we feel out there and we feel vulnerable. And when you're in a broken relationship with someone, and I mean from, from smaller stuff to serious stuff, this can be societal, or this can be serious brokenness in a marriage or relationship, right? And this can be in the everyday non-brokenness but serious moments in a marriage or a relationship or a friendship where it's you're fighting over something petty. And guess what? You don't want to, I'm not venting or anything right now. Uh, so you don't want to be the person who's going to go, hey, I'm sorry, because guess what? What you really want in your mind is for them to say, no, I'm sorry. And you're only going to go say sorry if you think that they're also going to say sorry. You get what I'm saying? Is it the quietness of understanding, sad understanding? But we have to make ourselves vulnerable of saying, I am going to love you no matter whether or not you love me. I'm going to submit myself to you whether you love me or not because guess what? God loved us while we did not love him. That God, in, in the Christmas story, it's about God himself coming to the broken world and taking on human flesh because we didn't love him. But he died on a cross, and guess what? People didn't love him. And he rose from the dead, and he showed himself to people, and people didn't love him. And he ascended into heaven and is still reigning over the world and people still don't love him. But guess what? He still loves each and every one of us. We Peacemaking makes us vulnerable. But, and this is how I think that we can cope with the vulnerability, to go through the vulnerability. So we've talked about making peace with God. We've talked about making peace with others. I think that there's a really important middle step uh, to, to, to that, and that's making peace with ourselves. So many of us cognitively know that we are at peace with God. It's like, yes, God saved me. I'm going to go to heaven. That's great, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. Yes, God does love me. But while we know that God loves us, we do not love ourselves. Why we know that we are at peace with God, we are not at peace with ourselves. This is something I've had to think about because um, it's frequently embarrassing to admit um, or to acknowledge, but a lot of like type A, like highly driven, like pushing, pushing, pushing kind of people, high speed, which of which I would be somewhat in that category, they, they, they experience extreme, extreme self-criticism or even self-hate. And a lot of times, these are the people who are like successful, who are visual, who like visibly successful, and they they you know they're they're the, they're the CEO of the big company, or they're the or they're the person on the stage, Christian Smith, the great sociologist, not me. And you look at them, you're like, wow, this person has everything together. But internally, they like next to hate themselves because they're so driven that they're never ever satisfied, and so they reach a goal 
but they're still unsatisfied with it because there's another goal that they want to achieve, and this one wasn't big enough, or when they achieved it, it was only a 99 out of 100. And so there's a constant experience of self-criticism, of dissatisfaction, and most fundamentally of not loving yourself. I only kind of even feel free to talk about this with myself, uh, literally with myself even, because I feel awkward saying the words self-love, very soft with my attempted brusque manly demeanor, <laughs> athleticism and whatnot. It's like, oh, what the f- I can't talk about this stuff. But as I've heard more and more uh, leaders like this talk about these, it's helped me to realize like, wow, I am not at a place of internal peace sometimes, right? A lot of times. And I think a lot of us aren't at places of internal peace where we are at peace with ourselves because we're, we don't understand what it means, the extent of which we are at peace with God. You see, we don't love ourselves because we don't understand the way in which God loves us. We think that loving or being at peace with ourselves, having internal centeredness in, in the peace of God is complacency. That it's, well, I have to be driving, I have to be moving. If I don't see all of my faults and only think about all of my faults, then how am I ever going to go do anything? Well, guess what? We can't go out and create peace in the world unless we have some sense of peace ourselves. We can't transmit out what we don't have ourselves. We can transmit out something that looks like peace, but you know that you don't actually have peace. And some of us might deal with this more than others. Maybe I'm speaking to some people, but I think all of us can become more at peace with ourselves. And why are we at peace with ourselves? It's not because, well, you're just great and you're awesome. No, that's not the case. Because we're all messed up. We aren't all aren't okay. I know a few of you. No, I'm just kidding. We can be at peace with ourselves because God has made peace with us. While we were kind of unlovable, God still loved us. He loved us knowing we're imperfect, but he loved us nonetheless. To where I can look at myself or or we can all look at ourselves and go, yes, I focus so much on the negatives, but for some reason God still loves me. So I go, God, can I look at myself how you look at me? And once I do that, I come to a place of centeredness, of peace, from which I can now make myself vulnerable when I go love someone who I know might not love me, because even if I am rejected, I know that I am accepted. That if I try and make peace, and I'm at a place where I'm so broken internally, and then it doesn't work, guess what? It's, oh, you can't do this. You're coming from a place of, of such insecurity or instability or whatever it might be that, that rejection then makes you feel not at peace yourself. But when we go, I'm at peace with God, and because I'm at peace with God, I can be at peace with my brokenness and with who I am and the good stuff and all that sort of, to where I can go enter into difficult situations and face vulnerability from a place of centeredness and trust on God. We have to be at peace with God, be at peace with ourselves, and then go out and make peace in the world. So before we close out, I want to finish with those two stories that I started reading earlier. Um, we read the story of Angela Atium, whose 14-year-old daughter was abducted in Uganda. She refused to be silent when her daughter was abducted. 
Atium and other mothers of abducted children began the Concerned Parents Association, seeking the release of the children while advocating a different approach toward their captors. Our message is unconditional forgiveness and reconciliation, she said. You have absolutely forgiven them. We can turn to a fresh page. We do it for the sake of the children who are alive. She continued, I have waited more than three years, some parents even longer. We are tired of war and our children need a better life. Of revenge, I would say that we cannot throw petrol on a burning fire. Otherwise, we would be like them. We can say this because we have been at the center of the pain. Forgiving those who have abducted your children and offering complete reconciliation. We read the story of Billy Neal Moore who shot and killed 77-year-old man, Stapton, uh, when robbing his house and Billy was sentenced to death. When Billy was in jail awaiting the trial in which he would be sentenced to death, a minister shared, him, shared with him the good news that Jesus loved him and wanted to forgive his sins. Moore learned that no one is beyond redemption. From prison, he wrote to his victim's family and asked their forgiveness. Astoundingly, they immediately wrote back to see that they were also Christians and that they forgave him. Then the family decided to petition to Georgia Parole Board to commute Moore's death sentence. In 1991, Moore was paroled from prison, transformed by the grace of God and his victim's family members. Moore said, when I was released, they embraced me like a brother. That's Stapton's family. He has been preaching the gospel of forgiveness to school children and groups ever since. Obviously, all of us are dealing with unique, and they're all different kinds of unique kinds of brokenness and messed upness and lack of peace and discord. And they all need to be dealt with, dealt with in their own unique way. And as Atium said, they can say what they say about forgiving the abductors because they've been at the center of the pain. And I haven't been at the center of everyone's unique pain. But I think what we can say scripturally and before God is that we have to have such extreme attitudes of self-sacrificial peacemaking to put ourselves on the line because Jesus put himself on the line for us to make peace with us and because we know that we can persevere through the difficulties of peacemaking when we're at peace with God and at peace with ourselves. What are the context in your life? What are the people you need to text before you leave the room? What are the work situations you have to deal with? All of us have practical things in our lives that we have to do. And that might be today, you need, you need to make peace with God. That could be confessing sins that you have before him, that you're holding against him. That could be coming to declare him as Lord for the first time in your life. That could be any number of things. We have to come to peace with yourself. Be at peace with who you are, while you're on a continual process of growth and sanctification with God, but know that God loves you through the whole process. And go out and be vulnerable and offer undeserved peace even to people. Offer peace to people who won't reciprocate it. People will be persecuted for the peace that they try and offer. Jesus was persecuted for it. Look at incredible figures like Martin Luther King Jr. who was persecuted for the peace that he offered. We can, when we come together with God, do incredible things when we exhibit his love to the rest of the world and the love that he showed us.